And now back to Gunsmoke. Billy the Kid was the first show by Walter Brown Newman. Received good reports, but nobody was quite sure upstairs whether we had a hit or a miss because our leading man didn't sound like a leading man. Bill Conrad was not playing Matt as a warm, understanding, paternal figure whatsoever. During the first few months, other writers were called in to mold the characters. Les Crutchfield was a, a writer who was to become one of the solid contributors to Gunsmoke, writing, oh, possibly 70 or 80 scripts. Les wrote a writer named Herb Purdom, Joe Murcott, Lou Houston, Tony Ellis, a cross-section of the better writers in town. But each week it meant that Meston had to do a little editing and a little fixing and a little adjusting on the script. And after about a year, John said that he didn't quite know why he was working this hard and not having the fun of writing them himself. So he left CBS, left an extraordinarily good job with a great deal of promise, as a matter of fact, on what was really a gamble, because who knew how long Gunsmoke would go. So for the next three or four years, until the television series started, John wrote basically every Gunsmoke, writing anywhere between... 40 and 52 scripts a year, so he was a he was a busy man. Colorado-born John Meston had his own views about the West and how the Gunsmoke characters should be developed and portrayed. Well, I don't like phony stuff, and uh, I know something about the West, sure. The way people are, the way they talk, the way they behave, and uh, I never liked heroes much. So we kind of reversed everything. Then so we did away. I tried to do it way we did with narration, which was sort of an innovation, I think, at the time. Well, we tried to make him honest, just an honest character, not a not a crook like like Wyatt Earp and people like that who were just bums. Tried to make him an honest guy, and, and uh, a guy with a sense of tragedy. And a guy who didn't particularly enjoy the job, did it. But then it took a, quite a while because, you know, we, we put Walter put Chester in. We had to work worked on him a great deal for a long time, and, and uh, Kitty and Doc had to develop, and Matt had to develop, and we did this over a long period of time. So we worked very closely. Uh, I used to go. I didn't go around hang around TV much, but uh, in radio, I was there all the time. Well, I'm always hired. The very best actors, no question of that. You know, they couldn't read a line. They'd, they'd let me know with great pleasure, and they're generally right. I learned how to write dialogue so it could be read and short. I always wrote short dialogue. I never wrote speeches like that, or I never, you know, unless it's absolutely necessary. Occasionally, for an effect. But the characters were developed very slowly. We'd go on. After the shows, Conrad and Norm and I and whoever else was around, Parley, whoever was interested, sit around and discuss the show. And we were all interested in and discuss character and this and that. Whether you should do this or that, how I should behave. And it was kind of a joint effort. Meston once expressed his views in detail. Here's Gunsmoke announcer George Walsh reading a classic Meston letter addressed to the editor of the New York Tribune. It isn't often that a writer or any man is given an opportunity to destroy a figure he's always hated, 
a character that all his life has cluttered his landscape like a slum. And to be able to do so and get paid for it to boot is to be doubly blessed. My hated figure is the Western hero who rides along, thumping his guitar, nasally singing a synthetic ballad, and looking for all the world like a fugitive from a cheap circus. I spit in his milk, and he'll have to go elsewhere to find somebody to pour the lead for his golden bullets. Now, the best way to destroy something bad is to ride it down with something better. And I've got a guy I think outclasses any of these phony big hats. His name's Matt Dillon, and his hair is probably red if he's got any left. He'd be handsomer than he is if he had better manners. But life and his enemies have left him looking a little beat up. And I suppose, having seen his mother back about 1840, struggling to take a bath in a wooden wash tub without fully undressing, left his soul a little warped. Anyway, there'd have to be something wrong with him, or he wouldn't have hired on as a United States Marshal in the heyday of Dodge City, Kansas. Dodge at that time was the wildest town in America, and it was populated by men just as warped and more so than Matt Dillon. Consider this. The West, just after the Civil War, was in a sense a kind of arena for frustrated gladiators. Homicidal psychopaths gathered along the frontier and had themselves a real circus with little or nothing to stop them from happily mowing one another down. And that more men didn't die in this senseless slaughter may be laid to their comparatively primitive weapons, and certainly not to any civilized tendencies on their part. It ended finally. The murderers killed one another off and gradually disappeared from this section of the American scene. But the end was partly hastened by a few strangers who happened to get their satisfaction killing on the side of the law, sheriffs, marshals, and the like. I'm sure a few of these men had a hazy sense of what the coming of law and order meant, but for the most part, they looked on their role in the play of progress simply as a job, and they went ahead and did their job, often in the face of unbelievable odds, and then picked up their paychecks and went their way. Heroes? To us, now they were heroes, but to their contemporaries, the biggest hero was he who, by whatever means, murdered the greatest number of his fellow men. The rules were childishly simple. If the other man went for his gun before you did, you were free to kill him with immunity. And anyway, if there weren't too many unfriendly witnesses about, you could always claim he did, and probably get by with it just as easily. Matt Dillon, because of obvious reasons, He's a cut above the usual lawman I've described. But he's not, I trust, so far above the real thing as to be pure fiction. And the hardest thing for me, the writer, is to keep him, on paper, from goofing off into the never-never land of pure heroism. And the hardest thing for Norman MacDonald, the producer-director, and Bill Conrad, the star, is to translate the script's attempt at authenticity into the living character of Matt Dillon. But we try, then try, and keep trying. 
Our attempt to create as realistic and entertaining a program as possible is not, of course, the only one of its kind. But we did precede and were on the air trying before the release of such pictures as High Noon and Shane. And we're still on the air. And we're still trying. Certainly, one of the reasons for Gunsmoke's hold upon its audience was Meston's style of writing. To try and analyze uh, John Meston's contribution to the writing style of Gunsmoke would be difficult because John's writing is not flashy, it's not uh, filled with purple prose, it's not... If anything, it's understated and simple. John and I always felt that good Western writing didn't necessarily mean double negatives and so on, that it really required research and understanding of the cowboy. And uh, John was an avid researcher. Also, of course, uh, his boyhood in Pueblo, Colorado helped color his scripts. But John used a great deal of the language that came from the cowboys that he had known and the friends he had known in Colorado. For instance, there was one phrase that John always loved particularly. A cowboy was talking about his mare to another cowboy who asked if the mare was a fast runner. And the first cowboy looked for a moment and then said, yes, she's swift. She could, uh, she could run a hole in the wind. She set her mind to it. Well, this was the kind of phrase that John loved because it was the, the man of the earth and the country using the things that he knew and using the things that he saw around him for descriptions, which gave the dialogue or the, or the speech patterns a richness and a fullness, was a strange combining of words and a strange combining of emotions that uh, gave John's dialogue, as written in the Gunsmoke scripts, a special meaning that was hard for anyone else to duplicate. Meston always had a, a feeling about names, too. He felt that a name was a whole indication of the character that was to come. A friend of Matt's who arrives in town, if I remember correctly, was a, a ex-lawman or a lawman, and a friend of Matt's. Meston called him Nick Search, which is a marvelous way of painting the man's whole background just with a couple of words, or other names like Toke Morlin, or a funny little fellow who was running a town and was a crook, but a kind of a pathetic little crook. His name was Joe Fye. There was a doctor who came into town and got in trouble because he, well, because of the laudanum that he was putting in his medicinal bottles. His name was Professor Lute Bone, which is a marvelous name for a doctor, or the buffalo hunter called Gatliff. John never gave Gatliff any name because he felt that Gatliff was enough. But he did mention that he was a man with speckled eyes, which is a beautiful way of describing a man. There was a family who lived out on the prairie who lived in a sod hut, a sad excuse for a home, and they were called the Beatles. As a matter of fact, John called the script uh, Smoking Out the Beatles. When it was done on television, it was changed to Smoking Out the Nolans for some reason that nobody yet has been able to figure out. John Muston was uh, a thorough technician and a 
writer of great integrity and accuracy. This is Parley Bear, the talented and versatile actor who portrayed Chester Proudfoot. And I think that since that era was probably the most colorful in Western history, that he strove to create and paint the most accurate image of the times that he could. And I, I think he succeeded. Now, so far as we know, you know what, what a genius uh, John had for picking out names that described the character. Matt Dillon was uh, so faithfully written and so impeccably reproduced by Royce the way he uh, builded it that at one time we had a letter from the then Secretary or President of the Chamber of Commerce in Dodge City wanting to know since they had already determined that Matt Dillon had lived in Dodge City did we have accurate knowledge as to when he lived in Dodge City now unless uh, it was just a, a matter of coincidence and conjecture that there had at one time according to the archives and the historical pages of Dodge City's history book that there had been a Matt Dillon there but so far as we knew and so far as John Meston knew uh, Matt Dillon was uh, completely a, a brainchild and, as well as the name and it was very flattering for Dodge City Chamber of Commerce to assume that uh, we would know when he had lived there when so far as we knew he never had people came west for a variety of reasons and chiefest among them it seemed like was a, a tragedy that had occurred either back east or in Europe or people came west it's true to forget or to hide something that uh, some malfeasance of their own in the more civilized sections of the country and uh, I think the West as it was developed indeed our whole country was developed as a result of disappointment elsewhere and uh, his pen had the ability to to pick that up there's a kind of trite expression I don't even know who originated it the whole world belongs to the actor for his use only not to keep he must give it back and uh, when you analyze that, it's, it's kind of true. You, I know that I've seen lots of people, and I think, my, he would be fun to play. And uh, then you're not above uh, plagiarizing a little bit of that man's uh, character, a little bit of his life, a little bit of his way of speech, a little bit of his background. And John uh, did that. Uh, Chester and, and Matt were talking, and Matt asked Chester why he got up so early. And he said, well, I... I, I can't sleep. He said, it's a trait I have. As soon as the sun up, my feet start to sweat, and then I get uncomfortable and get up. Well, John knew a person who said that. Uh, some old codger he had met said that he got up because there was something about the sun coming up caused his feet to sweat, and he became uncomfortable in bed, so he got up. Well, that, that was a good line for Chester to have. Humanisms. John did those things. Chester acquired this dog that he loved dearly and the dog liked everybody but Chester and after he had bitten him soundly Chester's only comment was he'll come around <laughs> John Meston wrote realism you could see the mud you could see the the slough that they were in you could see the filth but it was done because it was adroitly painted in have you found him, Mr. Dillon? Yeah. I thought I'd better come along. You, you see, 
Toby's dead, is that it? Yes, sir. All right. Well, Gatliss down there in the middle of the hollow. But we can't get anywhere near him as long as he's got that Sharps rifle. He's killed a small herd of buffalo in there, and now he's lying out in the center of them. Well, that's the darndest thing I ever heard of, Mr. Dillon. He must have gone crazy, just like Toby said. Yeah. What's he shooting at now? Mr. Dillon, the way he's facing them shots. Yeah, that's the signal for help, Chester. Come on. Maybe this is a trap. Uh, be ready to take cover behind one of these animals. It might be. Mm-hmm. Sounds like he's been hurt. Yeah. Keep your head up. There he is. Behind that big bull. I see him. Well, Mr. Dillon, he... He's all... There have been horses in here. Indians. My goodness. Come on. effort, Chester. He's dead now. Mr. Dillon, that's awful. Yeah. Come on, let's get out of here. I don't know how the Indians caught Gatliff. He'd gone a little mad, and maybe that made it easy for him. But they finally got themselves a buffalo hunter. And into their unbelievably savage torture of him had gone all the hatred and desperation of a race being slowly starved and driven from their homeland. And then they'd put him there surrounded by his own bloody slaughter. And they'd gone off with a gesture of contempt, leaving his rifle and his ammunition by his side. And having seen what they did to him, I'll never know how he managed to fire even one of those shots. For all of his evil, Gatliff had died harder than any man I'd ever seen. Chester and I rode back to Dodge. And it was never mentioned between us again. Most unique talent, a lovely man who is a great bleeder. He bleeds for everybody, and perhaps that is the key to the success of that show, is that it is so filled with uh, the repulsion of man's inhumanity to man seasoned and highlighted by 
red streaks of magnificent violence and uh, get the final total compassion with whatever the problem was. You add all of those up and uh, they spell mother under any conditions. The people were human beings. Georgia Ellis, who portrayed saloon madam Kitty Russell. Kitty was human. And uh, some of them had, had very homely touches in them, like uh, perhaps a dress fitting or a Howard fussing about how to kill a pain in the tooth, which might even have consumed a minute or two minutes. It was not continuous action or a bloodletting or a mystery or anything. You had a, a sense of continuity. You could almost taste the dust in the streets, perhaps. The beer wasn't very cold, but at least it was beer. And the cowboys were not clean. And the horses were sweaty. And uh, not everybody was pretty and beautiful and wore white hats. Supporting player, John Dater. Each show had to do, yes, with Matt Dillon, but Matt Dillon in relation to some one individual, some one family that comes to town or that lives in town that has a problem. Which means that uh, you didn't have so much plot as you had character, interesting people to listen to, you see. And this is what happened with the television uh, Gunsmoke 2. It was a novelty. We were all so used to... Uh, Hio Silver is a way that, uh, that this was a total departure into the area of serious examination of people and their problems. And then when you get that kind of writing and that kind of concept, it's a glorious thing for actors because this is the very thing that an actor wants to play a person, a human being. Running through many of John's scripts is a, a thread of the dignity of man and yet at the same time so frequently man's inhumanity to man or the inescapability of life and problems in the western frontier one of the things that John did in his scripts was to paint the the difficult position of a of a woman nowadays we're inclined to to say well if life's that difficult why didn't they go somewhere else and as John had his characters explain uh, where was there to go? They had no money. Uh, the household probably consisted of one mule, and uh, you can't ride too far on one mule and no money. And if the woman did get into town, what was she going to do? She couldn't suddenly find work in a boutique. She either was a dance hall girl or something less. So the frontier life was a hard and unforgiving sort of life, as John pictured it, and I think quite, quite accurately. One script that uh, perhaps illustrates what I'm saying was a script called The Cabin. I remember parenthetically that uh, John wrote this to go on the air after a particularly soft Christmas show, and he said, we can't have people think we're going to do soft shows, so he wrote The Cabin. Simply, the story was uh, Matt finding himself almost uh, isolated in a blizzard, approaches a cabin, where he finds a young girl has been savaged by two men who have killed her parents. They've been with her for a week during this extended blizzard. Matt, by the end of the show, is able to, uh, well, I shouldn't say able to kill them, but he does, gets them out of the way. And the closed scene is, is indicative of a Meston 
honest approach. Marshal? Marshal Dillon? What? Oh. Morning, Bell. Come on out in the kitchen, Marshal. It's warm there, and I got some hot coffee waiting. Uh, that sounds good. Uh, so it looks like the storm's lifted. It has. The wind's gone, but it's mighty cold out. Well, I don't mind the cold. It's that wind that breaks a man down. There. Get some of that in you. Uh. Mm. Oh, you make mighty good coffee, Belle. <laughs> Tell me something, Marshal. Hmm? Tell me the truth now. Oh, uh, sure, Bell. What is it? Are you married? I'd make a poor husband, Bell, for any woman. Why? Well, in my profession, it's it's too chancy. Thank you, Marshal. Thanks for putting it that way. Now, Bella, I, I didn't mean... Forget to... it. I'm leaving this place, Marshal. What? As soon as you go, I've packed what I need and I'm clearing off. Where'll you go? I got three horses and I'll ride up to Hayes City and sell them. Then what? I'll buy some pretty clothes and, and I'll find a place. Won't be hard after this. I, uh... I wish I could help you, Belle. You have. Oh, but I mean... I can take care of myself, Marshal. I just want to get away from here, that's all. Sure. Uh, I'll stop at the nearest ranch and tell the men to come over here and take care of Hack and Alvy as soon as it warms up. Whatever you like, Marshal. Well, goodbye, Belle. Goodbye, Marshal. Look me up in Hayes City next time you're there. Sure. Sure I will. But, uh... Belle, don't let all this make you bitter. There are a lot of good men in the world. So they say. So long, Marshal. I, uh... So long, Belle. A few minutes later, I'd saddled up and was on the trail to Dodge. The sky was low and a slate gray all over, but there was no wind. The blizzard had gone, leaving the land still and white and bitter cold. There wasn't a sign of life anywhere. It was like riding through a vast tomb. I found myself feeling like a trespasser. As though something had gone wrong. And I wasn't supposed to be there at all.
John Meston had a very firm, fixed feeling about Matt Dillon's character. and He often said that Matt didn't want to see America grow west and uh, with the sound of trumpets and uh, flags flying. He, he always said that Matt was a very honest, real man who was doing a difficult job the best way he knew how. Writer John Dunkel. I think that he was a typical hero in the sense that he was a pretty intelligent a very compassionate man, probably the ideal lawman. There was certainly the way Bill played him, a tremendously pathetic quality to uh, Dylan. His opening line was, uh, it's a chancy job. Parley Bear. I think probably uh, Dylan trusted Chester and Doc and Kitty as much as he dared trust anyone. He knew that uh, if he needed someone to stand at his back, Chester would be there. But I'm sure that in the back of his mind, he wasn't sure that Chester would function at all times. I think he had the same uh, feeling about Doc. Doc was dependable, but every now and again, he'd get sauced up, you know. And uh, maybe at, at the moment of removing the appendix, uh, Doc could have been a little snockered. Chester was dishonest with many people, but had to be completely honest with, with Dylan. And there was Dylan's strength. Everybody had to be honest with Dylan. Because... Insofar as a human being is concerned, I think probably of the whole, the whole cast, uh, Dylan was the one who was most completely honest in his dealings with lawbreakers, in his dealing with the town, in his dealing with his everyday associates. The woman in Dylan's life was Kitty Russell, owner and operator of the Long Branch Saloon, played by Georgia Ellis. She was a very generous, loving human being. She adored, of course, the four men in, in her life. Uh, Matt, uh, predominantly, and then uh, Chester, Doc. Not to say that she didn't have a certain kind of a of a ambivalent feeling towards Matt. I do think that she uh, considered him sort of the boss man, and she adored him dearly. And I'm quite sure they were very compatible. Yes, they were lovers, the best kind, because they really, truly understood one another. So there wasn't need for too much talk. I don't think there was any forgiveness to be done, because I don't think Kitty uh, was available to anybody else but Matt. Undoubtedly, she had wild dreams from time to time, which she realized were completely unrealistic, of uh, Matt and Kitty and uh, some large spread... But doing what? Who knows? Because Matt would never be happy doing anything but what he was doing. And she knew she would never be happy with Matt if he were not happy. So, no, she was resigned to, to uh, serving booze and and, uh, and saying, be careful, Matt. And she didn't have anything left in the East or wherever she came from to go back to. So what the hell? She was stuck in Dodge City. She was a good girl. She made a lot of it. There was a character in the first Gunsmoke script identified only as Townsman. Thanks to Bill Conrad, that Townsman became Chester. Parley Bear recalls the story. Bill Conrad named Chester. He said, no, and I can't say, hey, Townsman, come here. He said, he's got to have a name. Well, I was playing him uh, as I played Chester. And so Bill said, call him Chester or something like that. And so Chester he became. When I gave Chester his last name, I had a, a broken speech, and I guess it was 
weeks after we were on the air, I became just Chester. And uh, I had a broken speech that read something like, Well, as sure as and Wilders let me flounder, he didn't uh, stop me. We used to do that to each other quite a bit. And so I just added it. But sure as my name is Chester Wesley Proudfoot, and that's, uh, that's how Chester Wesley Proudfoot was was uh, named. And I can remember Bill, there's a Chester Wesley Proudfoot. Where did that come from? I said, well, got a broken speech. and Cut in on me there where you're supposed to, and I won't come up with those names. So it was Chester Proudfoot. Gunsmoke TV producer John Mantley once referred to Chester as a dim-witted town loafer. But Parley Bear, who created and portrayed the character on radio for nearly ten years, disagrees. I don't think he was uh, a dim-witted town loafer at all. He was lazy. But he still did his work, and he, he spun his wheels a great deal and kicked a lot of gravel. I would describe Chester as being uh, a dependable non-thinker to this extent. If we had a hypothetical case with nine desperados holed up and uh, Bill, as Matt Dillon had said, Chester, you watch the back door. And as they come out, you plug number one, three, five, and seven. Chester would have said, yes, sir. And as they came out, he would have said one, bang. He'd have let two go and he'd have gotten three. He'd have let four go and he'd have gotten five. Even though maybe two and four were bearing down on him, he would have said, Mr. Jones said to shoot them others. So then what are the ones I'm going to shoot? And that's what, but no, Chester was energetic. He was loyal. At times put upon by everybody but Dylan. Uh, as we played it, Chester was not really, he was never really deputized. Chester got Dylan out of scrapes every now and again. There was a pathetic tone written in Chester. Chester realized his shortcomings. I remember one script he did. I can't think of the name of it, but Chester saved Dylan. And as uh, they rode back to town, he said, uh, you'd best not tell anybody about that, Mr. Dylan, because that it could embarrass you if people were to know that, that I had saved you. He said, we just won't talk about that. And I think that, that was basically Chester. He was loyal sensitive man who much to Dylan's annoyance put sugar in his rye whiskey and and uh, was overly fond of jelly and as he confessed to one time when uh, Dylan said that chewing tobacco was a filthy habit he confessed that he didn't really chew tobacco and that, he, that it was licorice that was Chester I think and I tried to play him that way uh, uh, as simple but not a simpleton loyal, if not intelligent. The economy of the day got to him. Chester was never affluent. He had a, a great loyalty and pride. His his family, I guess you would, would have been tenant to sharecroppers or tenant farmers. I don't think they were ever great landowners. But Chester was fiercely proud of his family and defended them and had a absolute uh, adulation for for Dylan. Dylan was the ultimate so far as he was concerned. The part of Doc Adams was brilliantly played by veteran character actor Howard McNear. Howard McNear probably is the most fascinating human being I've ever known in my life. He was a consummate actor. 
He was a consummate human being. And all of this wrapped up in a pixie-like body, a wonderful comic mind that would make a laugh out of anything in the world for, I guess, ten solid years. He was the life of our cast. He and Parley combined were unbelievable in their making lightness and happiness and joy out of a common everyday experience. Howard and Parley are two people that everybody should know in their lives. Bill named uh, Doc, too. He was just Doc in there. And Howard McNear, who was so delightful in that that role, but he, he played him with just a trickle of blood dripping from his fangs. And uh, you got the feeling that Mephistopheles was looking over your shoulder a little bit as Howard played Doc. And uh, Bill Conrad christened him Dr. Charles Adams, just, you know, for the cartoonist. Well, when you talk about Howard, all of the adjectives like wonderful, unique, magnificent come to fore, he, Howard, I think, was one of the most truly delightful people I've ever known, ever met, and I had never heard anyone who didn't like him. Everybody loved him. And he, he was an absolute uh, asset to anything and everything he did. Later on, he became Floyd the Barber on the Andy Griffith Show. And he fell upon evil times. He had a series of strokes. He recovered from some, and then he would have some more. And uh, it's to Andy Griffith's eternal credit that for a couple of years, when uh, Howard was no longer ambulatory, like he stayed on the show, and they would, they would revolve scenes around him. He would be seated in his own barber chair or uh, in a place out in front of his shop, but they always fixed it, accommodated the scene to, to Howard, and I think it's a great tribute to his ability as a performer and an actor that many people didn't know that he was suffering from any handicap at all because he was sharp. He still had the same wonderful sense of humor, a real pixie sense of humor. And I can truthfully say that some of the happiest hours of my life were spent in his in his company. He lived between my house and the studio and I used to pick him up and bring him back. And those uh, minutes that we had week after week discussing the day's happenings or whatnot were, were marvelous. He was, he was a man of, of uh, strange attitudes at times and in strange inconsistencies and that's what added to his charm. Howard was a thoroughly conscientious man prepared at all times with his work. I've never known him to give a bad performance. And I worked on many shows with him aside from Gunsmoke. We were on there together, but he did a lot of lineups and escapes and whatnot. But he he lived in absolute terror. And, and this I can't understand because he was, he was a graduate of the old stock company circuit where you had to learn a new part a week while you were playing one, you know. But he was terrified that dialogue would be changed on it. And uh, he had it specified that once he was given a part, that was it, and they wouldn't change lines on him on the set. 
and he didn't even like to write in changes on uh, on radio scripts and that he uh, he abhorred change of any kind and and he sort of he developed a, an aura about himself as being very nervous and this that and the other thing and he he was a little on the hypochondriac side he carried a variety of pills which he was willing to share i don't know how many people he started off on the uh, or gave them some malady that they didn't have through sharing his his pills i know he had a box of pills one day i had a bad headache and i asked for aspirin he said you don't want to put that stuff in your stomach he said that's not good he's here take one of mine he said don't take that one they cost 50 cents a piece and besides it's not for a headache but he had a bottle of all shapes sizes and hues and colors of uh, pills and i i tell you not only our business but the world suffered a great loss when when he was taken and i don't know anyone who is remembered more fondly by our profession than Howard. Stories told about Howard McNear exemplify his wonderful wit and charm, and Parley Bear tells some of the best. Several years ago, Parley and Howard attended the funeral of Gail Gordon's mother, Gloria. We went to uh, this funeral, which was in Hollywood Cemetery, in a very small chapel, and the pews were very small. Only four people could sit in them, and, and they were they were very uh, tightly squeezed in then. And, uh, as it came time to the show, I have to, first of all, say that in the old days of radio, you, you never had really achieved until you had what we called a conflict, that you had to get permission from one director to be late to his rehearsal or leave his rehearsal for time to go to another. You had finally arrived when you had conflicts or when you had to pay a, a page to uh, open an exit-only door for you to get from CBS to NBC in order to make the show. The conflict was the ultimate thing for an actor. Well, we were tightly packed into this pew, and uh, as you do at a funeral, you remain quiet, and your tones are subdued, and your attitude too. And my watch was being repaired. Howard was on the outside, on the aisle. The funeral was set for two o'clock, and as we were sitting there, I leaned over to Howard and whispered, "What time is it?" And Howard. I said, what time is it? Howard's reply was, what's the matter? You got a conflict. I said, now, <laughs> cut out the nonsense, Howard. Tell me what time it is. Well, I remember too late that uh, Howard carried a watch, uh, a uh, pocket watch. <laughs> My tongue's perspiring. And not a wristwatch. And uh, so he had to lean way out, and I had to lean away from him. He's tugging to get this watch out, and as he pulled hard, the fob and the ring on the stem came out. There now, are you satisfied? I said, well, it's not my fault. Why don't you wear a wristwatch like everybody else does? So he got the watch out, fixed it, put the ring back on, snapped the watch open, looked at it, snapped it closed, and put it back in his pocket. I said, well, well, what? Then what time is it? He said, I just looked. But Howard, you didn't tell me. He said, they're not late. <laughs> he never did tell me what time it was. Another uh, funeral, I, I told you, a good friend had passed away, Will Wright. And uh, we kind of got everybody on there. The, I was on the member, uh, member of the board of directors for the American Federation of Television Radio Artists. Will had served on the board for many years. And we attended uh, the service in a body 
uh, Will was Presbyterian and also a Mason. And Howard went to the funeral with me, but he uh, he didn't sit with us on the board, but he sat with a very fine character actor by the name of Dick Ryan, who was a staunch Catholic. And as the service went on, they, they did half of Will's service, Presbyterian, and the second half was a Masonic service. And when the service was over, we waited and we came out and I saw Dick Ryan and Howard come in, come out of the chapel and Dick Ryan's face was just suffused with purple. He was really visibly upset and I thought, well, I'm sorry Dick's upset. I, I, I knew that he and Will had been good friends, but I, it didn't seem possible that Dick would be that emotionally upset about it. And I walked with him over to his car and I said, Dick, are you all right? And his reply was rather strange. He said, I will never sit by Howard McNair at another funeral as long as I live. Got in his car and drove off. And I said, when Howard and I got home, I said, what did you do to Dick Ryan? And he said, oh, he's emotionally unstable. And I said, well, he's all upset. What did you do? He said, well, he just went all to pieces for no reason at all. He said, well, the funeral was on. He said, as you know, it was first of all Presbyterian and it was Masonic. And I just leaned over and asked Dick, I said, are you fellows going to demand equal time? And what had happened, Dick, in his monumental effort to refrain from laughing and guffawing outside, he, I saw him two days later, he said, my rib cage is still sore from that guy. He said, I nearly strangled to keep from laughing out loud. He said, that's a terrible thing to ask you at a funeral if we're going to demand equal time. The pixiest charm of Howard McNear was even evident in where he went to church. Again, Parley Bear. Howard was a tremendously religious man, but didn't uh, really embrace any of the faiths as we know them today. Uh, he went to the church of his choice, which was one week one or another week another, sometimes unity, sometimes uh, uh, if there was a speaker he wanted to hear at the Emmanuel Baptist Church, he would go there. But when he passed away, his wife asked me if I would deliver the eulogy at his funeral, which terrified me. And uh, she said, the only command I lay upon you is that it not be lugubrious, it not be sad, that it would be something that Howard would like. And the chapel was pretty cool. We were in, uh, it was up at Forest Lawn. And... Uh, I didn't go into the usual, he was born on this date and so on, but in eulogizing him, I said some of the things that I've said today, how wonderful he was, what a brilliant performer, and one thing led to another, I kind of got off my text and I started to reminisce from the pulpit about some of the things that he had said and done, and the chapel was filled with friends of his, and as I told one story that had taken place uh, there, it got a laugh. And uh, that scared me, terrified me a little bit. And at the end of the, the, the thing, people in recalling the wonderful times that they had had with Howard, I got chuckles and real laughs in this thing. And I, I finished the eulogy. I, I didn't take it upon myself to rewrite any of the psalms, but I, I edited some and I, I joined the several poems, uh, psalms to what I felt was a fitting tribute to Howard. And I said to my wife, I, I don't dare face Helen. And I said, I, the last thing I wanted was to get laughs. 
at a funeral. I didn't mean that. I said, I think I, I committed a terrible thing. And as I walked over, uh, Helen came up and she uh, put her arms around me and she said, that's just exactly what Howard would have wanted. And uh, it was an ironic thing that uh, of all the things I've done, I think I got more letters of approbation from his friends uh, saying how they had, if it were possible, had enjoyed a funeral. And uh, I got a little note from Bill Conrad. He said, uh, I know Howard loved you, but now he must adore you. And that uh, was Howard. He was friendly and uh, forgiving even in death. Howard was a dream to work with. Not only did he have a great sense of humor, but he was a he was a much deeper actor than just the superficial comedy. Howard's background was legitimate theater, which he loved, and uh, he was able to play a great number of, of things. But I think one of the shows that uh, showcases Howard's work more than any other would be a script that John Meston wrote called Cow Doctor. Hey, Mr. Dillon, look who I got with me. Oh, hello, Kitty. Come on in. I have ran into Chester on the street, Matt. He insisted I come along with him. Well, I'm glad he did. Uh, I mailed them letters and things to the depot, Mr. Dillon. No, good, good, Chester. I took that circular over to Mr. Hightower. He'll print some up in a couple of days. Oh, uh-huh. good. That's all you want me to do, ain't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's all. Ain't nothing else you need. I mean, not right now. No. No, nothing else. Mm-hmm. Everything's pretty well took care of, ain't it? Yeah, everything's fine. Fine, Chester, yeah. Mm-hmm. Except uh, for that buzzing in your head. My head? <laughs> Come on, what is it, Chester? Just speak it right out. Uh, well, thing is, I run into this friend of mine a few minutes ago. I ain't seen him in years. I, I knowed him a long time ago, way back in the Army. Oh? <laughs> you know how it is. <laughs> Well, go on. Uh, well, see, he's stationed out at Fort Dodge, right here, only five miles away. My, <laughs> just imagine that. Chester, I-, I got an idea. Yes, sir? Look, why don't you ride out and see your friend, huh? Now, you can stay a couple of days if you want. There's nothing for you to do around here. Well, you think that'd be a good idea? <laughs> Well, it is my idea, isn't it? <laughs> yes, sir, it sure is. Well, I better get going then. No use wasting time, is it? Bye, Chester. Uh, bye, Miss Kitty. I'll, I'll be back in a day or two, Mr. Jones. Yeah, well, you have a good time, Chester. <laughs> and uh, leave the door open. It's awful hot in here. Yes, huh? I will. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why he wanted you here. Huh? Oh, I guess he thought it might help. But he forgot to mention something. No, there. what's that? Uh, this dear old friend of his has got a pretty interesting job in the Army. Yeah, is that so? Yeah. 
He's a mess sergeant. A mess sergeant? <laughs> well, after a couple of days of that, I'll have to go after Chester with a wagon. You may never see him again. Yeah. Marshal Dillon? Ah, come on in, son. I'm looking for Doc. Well, his office is right next door. I've been there. I've been everywhere. Oh, you need him bad? I was sent to fetch him. Somebody's sick? My pa told me to bring him out to our place. Well, is it your pa who's sick? He wants the doc bad, Marshal. Well, who is your pa, son? Ben Pitcher. Are you Ben Pitcher's boy? My name's Jerry. Oh. oh, Jerry, your pa must be pretty sick if he sent for doc. I know. He hates doctors. He don't believe in them. But he wants Doc to come, Marshal. He told me I had to find him. I've looked everywhere. Well, there's a back room at the Dodge house, Jerry. Doc sometimes plays a little poker in there. Well, thank you, lady. I'll go look. Uh, if you don't find him there, come back and I'll help you, Jerry. Thanks, Marshal. Oh, and uh, Jerry. Yes, sir? If you do find him, be sure and tell him that I want to see him before he leaves, huh? I'll tell him, Marshal. Ah, that's a surprise. Yeah. I've heard about Ben Pritchard. How he hates doctors. His wife's just as bad. I remember he got cut up in a knife fight here in town sometime back and then threatened to kill Doc if he got anywhere near him. He almost bled to death as a result. You know, there's something wrong about this, Kitty. I think I'll ride out there with Doc. Good. I'd sure hate to see anything happen to Doc. Yeah, so would everybody. Except Pitcher. <laughs> you like riding in a buggy, Matt? Make you feel important? Yeah, it sure does, Doc. But the way you drive, I'd feel a lot safer on a horse. <laughs> You'll get used to it. Well, I hope not. <laughs> Whoa, there. Whoa. I don't see anybody around. Well, you expect a sick man to be waiting on the porch for you? I'd expect most anything of Ben Pitcher. Well, a man can change, Doc. Oh, change. Not him. Not Pitcher. Well, we'll soon find out. What are you doing here, Marshal? I came along to keep Doc company, Miss Fisher. Oh. Ma'am? Where's the boy? Well, Jerry said to tell you he'd be along directly. Why didn't he come with you? Well, he said that you gave him a list of stuff to buy while he was in town. Oh. Forgot. Oh, we're wasting time. Where's Ben, Mrs. Fisher? He's out back. He's uh, out back? In the barn. 
What's he doing in the barn? You ask him, Doc. I don't interfere in my husband's way of doing things. Mm-hmm. Is he sick, or isn't he? He's in the barn. You go see him. I got work to do. Hey. That woman could say drive me crazy, man. <laughs> Maybe that's what happened to Pitcher, Doc. Mm-hmm. Between the two of them, it's a wonder the boys made out at all. Yeah, Jerry seems okay. If they have their way, they'll make a spook out of them yet. You know, you're not very charitable, Doc. Oh, charitable. You don't fool me, Mad Dillon. You don't like them any better than I do. I always try to look for the good side in people, Doc. Oh, sure. Hogwash. <laughs> yeah. Pretty good barn he's got here. Yeah. Look, uh, I'll go in first, huh? What's that? You, you follow me. Pitcher. Hey, Pitcher. I'm back here. Come on, Doc. Over here in this stall. I thought it was Doc. He's here, Pitcher. What are you doing in there with that cow? I thought you were sick. It ain't me that's sick. Well, who is sick? A cow. What? The cow's got the colic or something. I've done everything I can for her. You mean you had me come all this way, way out here, to doctor a cow? I wouldn't let you doctor no human. I thought there was something wrong about all this. Cow's, cow's different. I don't mind so much you working on a cow. Oh, you don't. Oh, cows are different. Humans can get well by themselves, but cows is helpless. They're kind of pitiful. Uh, listen to her. She's hurting bad, dog. I ought to kick you right in the head, Ben Pitcher. Don't take it out on me that you doctors don't know nothing. If you're so smart, do something for my cow. Before she dies, dog. Oh, all right. I'll look at her. But you sure don't deserve it, Ben. You ain't doing it for me. You bet I'm not. Now get out of the way and let me in there. Ah, take your time, Doc. I'm in no hurry. What's he doing in there all this time, Marshal? Leave him be, Ben. He'll let us know if he wants any help. How's my cow, Doc? Oh, I guess he's through. Here's your knife, Ben. Did you stick her with it? I did, and she's going to feel a lot better. You can give her all the water she wants, but don't let her eat anything for a day or two. She going to live? I don't know. If she dies, I ain't going to pay you. I wouldn't take any money from you anyway. What's wrong with my money? It's not your money. It's you. What do you mean? Hey, Paul, I'm back. I got all the stuff, Ma, want it. You'd better, Rose. Oh, Doc, Marshal. Jerry. Say, Doc, you missed all the excitement. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, it happened just after you left. Everybody was running around looking for you. What happened, Jerry? Oh, Mrs. Hill, she was walking down the street, and I guess the sun was too much for her or something. Anyway, she fainted, and she fell against the window right there at the general store, and it cut her arm real bad. Nobody could get it stopped bleeding. Yeah, they couldn't. 
That's why they were looking for you, Doc. I told them you'd come out here, but they wouldn't believe well, me. Well, what happened to Mrs. Hill, Jerry? She died, Doc. Huh? Just before I left. She died. Did you hear that picture? A woman died. If I'd been there, I could have saved her, but... But she died. Don't talk at me. She died because of you and your rotten, twisted ways. Ah, none of you doctors is any good. You couldn't have done nothing. Oh, no good. Well, I'll show you. No, wait a minute, Doc. You're not. I'll show you. Nobody hits me. But Pa's got a knife. No, Pitcher, put it out. No, he cut him. Pitcher. Here, Doc. I got you. He ripped me with a knife, Matt. Yeah. You hurt bad? Well, it's bleeding. See that? You can help me in the house. Now, we, we, we can look at it there. Yeah, sure, Doc. What about Paul? You let me know when he comes to. I'll come back and knock him out again. Pretty clean now, Doc. Oh, oh well. Oh, that looks better. Yeah, but it's still bleeding now. I don't care for that mess you're making on that bed, Marshal. Go get me another pan of hot water. You ordering me around my own house? You do it, uh, Matt. Yeah, Doc. I'm not sure, but I. I don't think that knife ruptured anything. Oh, that's good. But a couple of those veins have to be tied off, and then it's, it's got to be sewed up, you see. Oh? Uh, there are needles and thread in my bag. Now, I'd do it myself, but I, I can't reach it easy enough. What? You mean you want me to do it? Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you how I'm at you. Well, you think I can? <laughs> Oh, it's easy, especially for a gunfighter. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. I can bleed to death this way. I won't have any trouble, Doc. Here, you hold a cloth on it, huh? I got it. I'll go get your bag. Marshal. Get out of here, pitcher. You hit me awful hard. Did I? He jumped me first. You saw him. I was protecting myself. Pitcher, if Doc doesn't come out of this all right, I'm going to quit being a marshal, and I'm going to come after you as a plain man looking for revenge. You're threatening me. It's wrong of me, but I'm going to kill you, Pitcher. No, no. Get out of here and stay out of this house. Go on. I'm, I'm going. I'm going. It wasn't easy, and I felt like I had fence posts for fingers. But I finally got Doc sewed up. He'd lost an awful lot of blood, and he passed out before I finished. So all I could do was sit there and watch him. And maybe that was the hardest part. 
In the morning, however, he seemed better, and he insisted that I take him into Dodge. So I made him a bed in Pitcher's wagon and had Jerry drive the buggy alongside. He was in bad shape by the time we reached town, but I got him into his own bed and then sent for Kitty to help me out. I don't know what I'd have done without her for that next week. Ma. Yeah, Kitty, I'm coming. You know what he wants now? Oh, what? He's tired of drinking plain water. He says if we don't start cutting it with some good corn, he won't drink anymore. Well, then let him go thirsty. He won't hold out long. <laughs> no public servant's going to tell me what's good for him. You send that lawman down for some whiskey. Doc, now we've gone to a lot of trouble to keep you alive. We sure have. Oh, don't you worry about me. I'd get out of bed right now. And, uh, I like being waited on. Now, who's that? Oh, that's a dumb question. Who's that? How do I know? Go look. Doc, I never thought anything could make you any ornerier than you've always been, but getting stabbed, did I? Oh, never mind the gab. Just answer the door. Well, come on in. Oh, what manners. Come on in, I said. Oh, good heavens. Man. Well, go ahead, Doc. Fire me. Doc? Doc? Um, in here. Uh, oh, where? It's Jerry. Yeah, come on in, son. Oh, Doc? Marshal? Now, what are you doing in town, Jerry? I come for Doc. What? Paul's sick. He's about to die so sick. Oh, now, look, It's Jerry. the truth, Marshal. Paul made me lie last time, but he don't even know I'm here now. He doesn't know you're here. Huh? He's too sick, Doc. It's like he's out of his head. He don't know nothing. What about your ma? Does she know you're here? No, I didn't tell her. She'd have stopped me. Doc? Jerry, your pa tried to kill Doc the last time, and he's still in bed. Now, he can't go anyplace. Please, Doc. Why should he risk his life for your poor? Wait a minute, Matt. Now, just wait a minute. Here uh, I'll come, Jerry. Now, don't be silly. I'm Doc. a doctor, Matt. A man's dying. Doesn't matter what man. I knew you'd come. I knew you you're would. You're crazy, Doc. You'll open that cut riding out there. Besides, you're not strong enough. You'd be taking an awful chance, Jerry, Doc. what? How'd you come to town? I figured you'd need it, so I brought the wagon. I thought so. Where are you going to help me out, man? All right. I'll help you out, Doc. should let me carry you, Doc. No, no. I'll make it. He's awful weak, ain't he? Yeah, he is. Here, I'll get the door. Come on in. Ma's probably in the bedroom. It's over this way. We know where it is, Jerry. Oh, I forgot. That you, Jerry? It's me, Ma. Where have you been? Doc. What are you doing here? Jerry came after me, Mrs. Pitcher. We don't want no doctors. 
Your husband's sick? He's terrible sick. But you can't do him no good. Yeah, I can try. Jerry, I'm going to whoop you. No, Miss Pitcher. No, you're not. Don't you tell me what I'm going to do, Marco. Look at Doc, Miss Pitcher. You can tell he shouldn't be here at all, but he came. He came to help a man who tried to kill him. And nobody's going to stop him. Now, come on, Doc. Get out of the way, Miss Pitcher. Hmm. Get you a chair, Doc. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, oh. Here you are. Oh, he, he looks pretty sick. Marshal, pull me, Jerry. Now what? She's got a gun, Marshal. I told me, I said. I got her, Jerry. I'll kill you. You and Doc both. Give me that. No. There. Now you sit down. Go on. Jerry, you go see if Doc needs any help, huh? Okay, Marshal. You know, Miss Pitcher, you don't deserve Doc being here. You don't deserve it at all. Yeah, what? I've been thinking. All night I've been sitting here thinking. No? I don't want my husband to die. I can't have him die. Doc's doing everything he can for him, Miss Pitcher. Can he save him? You think he can save him? I don't know. Well, Mrs. Pitcher... How is he, Doc? Well, he's past the worst. I think he'll be a... Can I see him? Can he talk? Yes, but not for long. He needs a lot of rest now. Well, speaking of rest, Doc, you... You look like you could use some, too. Yeah, we're going back to Dodge, man. <laughs> oh, I'll sleep the whole way. Good. Doc, he wants to talk to you. What is it, Pitcher? More. More says you was here all night. I was, yes. She says you saved my life. Well, maybe I helped her. Maybe. But what I want to say is that I ain't going to pay you. I didn't ask you to, Pitcher. Pitcher, Doc saved your life. Maybe he did. But I ain't going to pay him. It doesn't matter, but why not? Because my cow died. No, but... Pitcher, I'm going to... Matt, Matt, Matt. Don't bother. Come on, let's go. Let's go. Okay, Doc. Doc? Yes? He 
means what he says, Doc. I can't change him. It's all right now. I can't change him, but there's something I gotta say. Yes? I'm proud to have you in my house, Doc. I'm real proud. I can't say no more. We'll return to the biography of Gunsmoke in just one moment.